Amen. Please be seated. It's my privilege to uh, introduce you to our special speaker this morning. One of the most important periods of a person's life is during their college, uh, their college years, that experience, and there is great opportunity for uh, growth and discipleship, evangelism. If, uh, when people go to college, they're very open to new things and new ideas, and uh, they're away from their home for the first time. There's just so much opportunity that happens in a person's life at that stage. Our denomination, uh, many years ago, uh, 30 years ago now, started a ministry called Reformed University Ministries. And this is uh, a ministry where an ordained pastor would be placed near a, a major campus with the purpose of developing a discipleship group for believers, but also for evangelism for those who did not yet know Christ as Savior, and to be a presence there, and then also connect to a local church. So there would be a a full discipleship effort where people would come to Christ and be plugged into the local church, because a local church is God's ordained uh, instrument for evangelism and discipleship. And by linking students to the church in this way, to Christ first and to his church, uh, you have this strengthening that happens in a person's life much in, in a, when they're young and they're able to be immediately fruitful in the life of the church rather than often happens. People go to college, they, they, they wander a bit or they lose their way and years can go by, really lost years for serving Christ with their gifts uh, when they get out of college and look for a place to settle and it just is a real key moment in a person's life to see something really grab hold by God's grace. And that ministry started to spread over the country. And we're one of the last places where it's finally come to in the Midwest. We're a small presbytery. Uh, But a couple years ago, uh, by way of some donations given uh, to see places that didn't have churches or Reformed University ministries there, uh, those donations allowed for church plants and for RU. M ministry, they're called RUF on campus, Reformed University Fellowship, together to go to a place and see those places plant, those churches planted, and those ministries planted. And that is what happened for us in our presbytery, and Brian Huff went to be the planter of the church, and Pastor John Dunning, who had been the associate pastor at one of our sister churches, Oak Hills PCA, for 10 years, he is the university minister there. He's the RUF minister who lives there in residence, and he helps Brian with their church development, and those students, many of those students then come to the church, and over 10 Redeemer students right now at K-State go to the church and to the ministry, and many more are coming up. In fact, some people have changed plans with regard to college knowing that this ministry exists in Manhattan uh, where their students will go. So it's a wonderful opportunity to hear from Pastor John as he comes and opens the word for us and even brings us a bit of an update of how things are going there. Now, you will notice, it's not that I am short. John is unusually, maybe even freakishly tall. So we're clear. But it's a great blessing. I've known John for many years and I love him. And I'm glad that he can come here and open the word uh, to us. Uh, thanks, Tony. <laughs> it's good to be with you all this morning. It's a privilege. I, every time I come through your doors, I think about the many times I ran through here barefoot. 
um, because of Vacation Bible School and other youth events that we had going on, and it's fun knowing that I can wear shoes now and knowing that I'm not going to get slime dumped on my head at the end of the time here. At least I don't think that's going to happen. Um, but it is truly a joy and a privilege to be here. I'm grateful for you all as a congregation. Um, it's been fun even this morning to talk with people between services to hear people say, we've been praying for you. Um, you have no idea how much of an encouragement that is, your emails, your financial support. The, the chance to be doing what we get to do is simply amazing on many levels, and I could not be more grateful for Redeemer's leadership in this process and your faithfulness um, to us, and more importantly, to this ministry and to the work of the gospel as it spreads. I bring greetings from Manhattan Presbyterian Church, from Pastor Brian Huff and his family. They miss you all dearly. Uh, they love you all very dearly, and the Lord is using them greatly in the city of Manhattan and the lives of students, but also in the lives of many others. God has been so good. Um, the church is going well. We started meeting, the church started meeting weekly for worship this fall, and it, it's, we've no, we have not had a small Sunday. It's been, God has been so good and kind to us just to shed his light upon us. And so we ask that you continue to pray for the work of RUF on the campus and for the work of Manhattan Presbyterian Church. Just briefly to add uh, to Tony's excellent and helpful introduction, RUF is a campus ministry of our denomination um, committed to sending ordained pastors um, to the college campus specifically. Uh, we believe, and we're on about 100 and f- close to 150 campuses now um, by God's great provision. Um, the works are spreading um, places like the Midwest, which are not heavy in our denomination in terms of um, church population, and God has been good and kind to allow us to continue to expand this work here. Um, RUF is, is really about being committed to three main truths, if you will. The first is that the, that the gospel is true. That God, lo- God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever should believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. And that, that that's true. And it's not true because it's a neat idea. It's true because God sent his son into the world so that we might have life. And we're going to talk more about that in a moment. But we're committed to that. We're, we, we believe that God is at work on the college campus. As dark a place as it may seem to you at times, God is at work there abundantly, and I get to be a part of seeing this happen in the lives of young people. The second thing we're committed to is that, and this may sound strange, but that the university is a very real place. It's easy to look at college years as a parenthesis in life, but somewhere between being at home and then whatever happens after that. Um, But I want to tell you, it's a very real place where, where we interact with real people who are asking very real and sometimes very difficult and painful questions about what life is all about, and it's an opportunity to engage with them with the truth of God's word in the context of of fellowship, in the context of ministry, to help them to seek the Lord and to know what it is to know him more. And the third truth is, as Pastor Tony said, we we believe not only that the gospel is true and that the university is a real place, but that the church is God's means for growing his kingdom in this world church locally in terms of the expression of Manhattan Presbyterian Church being there as a place where students can get plugged in. And you don't show up on a Sunday at Manhattan Pres and not see students actively serving the congregation. I, I thank you for sending us your young people and their gifts, and thank you for loving them well and sending them to us in that sense. Um, but it's also part of our, our commitment to the church is also part of the expression of sending an ordained minister. My accountability is not only with the local church, but with the broader church, with our presbytery, with a geographical collection of churches. And so we believe God has called us to this work, and we're thankful for that, and we pray that he continues to bless. 
what RUF has looked like this fall, we've had a number of Bible studies um, happening on campus. I lead one on Tuesday nights. We actually have been going through the book of 1 John, which is why we're going to look at 1 John chapter 4 this morning. We have three other studies that meet in dorms at various places around campus throughout the week that are student-led. And it's been encouraging to see young people not only care for one another well socially and in fellowship, but in terms of learning to lead others in Bible discussions. And it's been awesome to be a part of seeing that happen. Um, I do have a table set up in the, in the Narthex area. If you'd want to stop by, I'd love to chat with you and get you some information about RUF. There is a sign-up sheet. If you want to be praying for us, I'll be the first to tell you I'm not great about consistency, but I've gotten better in terms of keeping folks updated via email, and that's an easy way to follow us in terms of finding on how you all can continue to be praying for us. So I'd love to do that. This morning, I want to draw your attention, as I said, to 1 John, the, book, the letter of 1 John written by one of Jesus' closest followers. It is indeed a letter, and we need to read it that way, understanding that John was writing later in life, so he's an older, older man, a pastor, um, if you will, um, writing to people that he does not identify by name, but it's evident that he loves them dearly. He tells us early on, in um, the first chapter that he's writing so that our joy may be complete, that John finds great affection for the people and great joy and love as he writes to these people because of his connection with them, because of their history, because of God's work in their lives. He also tells us in chapter two that he's writing to them so that they may not sin. So not only does he find joy in connecting with them, but he's writing to them so that the gospel might be reflected, the truth of who Jesus is and what he's accomplished might be reflected in his ongoing work in their lives. And then at the end of chapter 5, John writes that he's writing this, that you may know that you have eternal life. John wants to encourage. John wants to, um, to help um, the, these believers understand the doctrine that we call assurance of salvation, that they might be, have, be find comfort. I've summarized this. We've been through this um, study this semester of this letter. I've summarized this with three basic questions for the students. The first question is, what do you love? Where do you find joy? Where do you find life? Where, do, where is your heart drawn? The second question is, how do you live? Acknowledging that Scripture throughout Scripture addresses not only where, where our heart is set, but also addresses, forces us to consider how is it that we're going about living our lives. And the third question that I've summarized this letter is, where do you find rest? Where is your hope set? Where is your gaze set? But when we get to chapter 4, we're gonna, this morning we're going to consider chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. And when we land in chapter 4, what we find John doing is taking those three issues, what do you love, how do you live, and where do you find rest, and asking the question, how do we answer those questions as we follow Jesus in a world that doesn't understand who Jesus is and doesn't embrace, it doesn't embrace him, and, and, all, and even looking at ourselves, how do we do this knowing that our hearts are often prone to wander? So these are the questions we bring to 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. I believe there's an insert in your bulletin with the text on it. I'd encourage you to follow along there or in your Bibles. Hear now the word of God. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out from the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in, it, come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. 
They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you have spoken. We pray by the work of your spirit that it would be clear because it takes the work of your spirit to cut through our dryness, to cut through our apathy, to speak into to, to, to hearts that need your renewal. We pray for understanding and we pray for change. In your name, Lord Jesus, we pray all of this. Amen. It's an interesting exercise of mine to sit down with especially new students who are new to K-State to ask them a series of questions, hopefully not in too much of a mechanical kind of way, but just to get a flavor of how college is treating them and how it's meeting with their expectations. Last fall, I sat down with a student who had come from, not from this church, but had come from a solid Christian home, a very intelligent young woman who has just done a great job of engaging with life at K-State, and asked her a series of questions along, somewhere along the lines of, tell me what your experience here has been like. Did it meet your expectations? What surprised you? What's been difficult? And her response, which I've talked to some of you about before, it has been interest, it was interesting to me. She said, college has been a stripping away of the Christian foundation in which I was raised. All around me, I see a world in conflict with the values of my family, of my church with which I was raised, and it's been difficult for me to know what is right. Now, this girl was not sharing any of this from a place of despair or feeling lost with it. She was simply trying to, as honestly as she could, reflect what she's hearing, what the voices she's hearing, and how they're impacting her as a young woman, as a follower of Christ on the college campus. What you need to know about these reflections from her, they didn't come from the classroom. She didn't feel this way because an atheistic professor had been breathing down the neck of his class trying to force his, his beliefs or lack of beliefs on anybody in particular. They didn't come from her studying things that she had never heard about, doctrines and philosophies and ideologies, because she had been well-schooled in various ways of thought and worldviews. You see, these thoughts came to, to her as she interacted with the world around her, as she got involved in life in her dorm, as she got to know students from around the country and even around the world, and enjoyed fun things with them late at night and early in the morning and other, and other activities that they were involved in. You see, it came from just day-to-day interaction for her. And this is where I believe we need to hear John's words from 1 John chapter 4. He says to us initially, he says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Now John is writing with a time where it's entirely possible that when he uses the word spirit and spirits here, he could be speaking of a belief in the supernatural that's, that's a very direct um, correlation with what was happening in the day and what people were real willing to hold on to. I'm hearing voices, I'm seeing spirits, I'm talking to my dead relatives. It could mean that. But notice where verse 1 ends. He says all of this, for many false prophets have gone into the world. I think what John is saying is something much more general than that. I think he's talking about the voices that all of us hear, the ideas, the spirit of the age that is all around the many thoughts and suggestions as to how we're to live our lives, the things we're to value, the things we're to be committed to. 
he's talking about a very active presence in the day-to-day life of people who are committed to knowing Jesus more fully. It's no different for us. Whether you're in college or not, whether you're on a college campus or not, whether you're in Manhattan or Olathe or Lenexa or Overland Park or anywhere else in Johnson County, whether you're at a Christian school or homeschooled, wherever it is, there's always voices that we hear trying to persuade us to believe them and to be committed to them. John's instruction to us is to test, to examine, to pursue, to understand, and to hold up to the truth to see how they match with what God has revealed in his word. The question that John answers, that John addresses as we look through these verses this morning is, so how do we do that? If the command is to test the spirits, the voices, the influences that are all around every one of us, whether it's at work, at home, at school, wherever it may be, the question is how? At the very heart of the question is what we, the, the heart of the answer to that is what we see happening in verses 2 and 3. Because John begins by explaining how by calling us to embrace the standard, and the standard is Jesus. Look with me again at verses 2 and 3. There John says, by this you know the Spirit of God. And he's going to tell us by what we know the Spirit of God. He says in verse 2, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. He actually goes on to to use a word that, that we may not use that often. He says, this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and now is in the world already. There are voices that we hear. And the test, the standard, if you will, that John calls us to embrace is that of the answer to the question, who is Jesus? And there's two basic answers to the question that show up in the text. One, the first one is the assumption. When John uses the phrase false prophet, what he's addressing is that the fact that there were teachers, that there were professional philosophers or other scholars who would influence a community claiming to speak on behalf of God. For us, part of what that reminds us is, part of the answer to the question, who is Jesus, is that Jesus does speak for God because Jesus is God. John wants us to know up front, Jesus is divine. But there's another piece that comes into play here, isn't it? It's what's what's blatant and what's obvious there, especially in verse 2. He says, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. So at the heart, not only is the fact that Jesus is God, that Jesus is divine, but right alongside that is the confession that Jesus is fully human. For John, this would have been a most basic assumption. Why? Because the, the man who wrote these words was one of Jesus' 12 followers. To speak, for him to speak of Jesus apart from knowing him in the flesh is insanity because he sat with Jesus. He ate with him. In fact, in, in the beginning of this very letter, in the first two verses, John writes this. He says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it. John wants you to know Jesus came in the flesh. At the heart of what his message is, is that Jesus was a real person. And John knows he was a real person because he sat next to him. Because they walked together. Because they talked together. Because they shared meals together. Jesus is fully human. Aside, though, from John's experience, why does it matter? 
Well, in part, the way John will answer in this very letter, later in chapter one, he says this, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But then he adds just a few verses later that Christ the righteous is the propitiation for our sins. It's important to know that Jesus came in the flesh because Jesus was the sacrifice that we needed to know God. Because God in his holiness and his perfection had to punish sin. Sin could not last in the presence of God for God to remain God. And yet for us to face that punishment, all we would have would be destruction. And so God loved the world. He sent his only son to die, to live, to die, and to rise again so that we might have life. If Jesus didn't come in the flesh, you are not forgiven. I went to one of my favorite haunts when, I, when we lived here yesterday, and thankfully I came out with no, no more books. Half Price Books is a place I would visit regularly because I could get more books, and instead of buying more yesterday, I took some back, which I was grateful for. Um, but on the shelf there, I noticed something called Bendable Jesus. It's a little, plastic, little rubber doll-like action figure thing. You know, you probably have seen them all. You've probably seen them, a little action figure kind of thing. It was rubber on the outside and it has stiff wire on the inside so you could pose Jesus however you want. John's message is we don't get to do that with Jesus. We don't get to make him in our image. We don't get to decide how he stands. We don't get to decide what he looks like and what he does. Jesus is fully divine. Jesus is fully human. And that's the standard that's given for us. A few implications for us on this idea. First is this. If the Jesus you serve is not God, you're not serving Jesus. If you read the Bible and come to the conclusion that Jesus had some good ideas sometimes, but that he's not God and he didn't claim to be, I'm sorry, but you're misreading the Bible. You are not reading it accurately because the Bible's testimony again and again and again and again is that Jesus is the eternal Son of God who has always existed, who walked along the earth and is now seated at the right hand of God the Father. If that is not the Jesus you serve, then you don't have any Jesus. But at the same time, there's, another, there's a corollary to that, and it is this. If the Jesus that you serve never had a body, or it didn't matter if he did, if the Jesus you serve is only a way of life, if he's only a set of principles to help you parent better, if he's only an idea or a philosophy, then you don't have Jesus either. Because we need Jesus to have come in the flesh And if that is not the Jesus you serve, if he's only an idea or a way of life and nothing more, you don't have Jesus either. The standard is that Jesus was fully God and Jesus is fully man. But interestingly, John adds to this as we continue to make our way through. Not only does he give us the standard, but he talks about how we hold on to that standard. He gives for us the stance that he wants us to take as we cling to these truths of Jesus' humanity and Jesus' divinity. What John calls us to in verse 4 is a humble confidence. Look at verse 4 with me and see how he directs us in this regard. He says, little children. He's, again, he's writing as a pastor to people that he loves dearly. He's called them in verse 1 his beloved, but now he speaks to them with such tenderness. And he says, little children, you are from God and have overcome them those who would stand opposed to what you believe about the Christ, those who are trying to make your life more difficult, know that you are from God and that you have overcome them. 
what John is doing in part is protecting us from despair. Part of, part of what he's doing is protecting us from living defeated lives by telling us, look, there may, it may seem like the enemy is the biggest thing in your life right now, whether it's your circumstances or specific people, but know that you have overcome. You're not defeated. By definition, you are not a defeated people if your faith is in Christ. And yet as he continues, he not only protects us from despair, but he also seems to protect us from arrogance. Look again at, verse, at the second part of verse 4. He says, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. You have overcome not because of your intelligence, not because of your income, not because of where you live, not because of your family's privilege or name. You have overcome because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. The one who is in you is the one who has overcome, which are the very words of Jesus himself. There is no room for arrogance in the stance as we test the spirits. There is no room for self-confidence. The room is for the eternal confidence in the work of Jesus alone. Think for a minute with me about John the Baptist, the one who was sent, who was a relative of Jesus's, who God sent to preach to prepare the people for the coming of the Messiah, the coming of Jesus. Do you remember what his ministry looked like? He was a freak. He lived in the, he lived in the wilderness. He ate bugs and honey. Probably didn't bathe ever. Had a coat of camel hair and a leather strap around his waist. And he preached about the coming Messiah after the prophets had been silent for hundreds of years. Here was one claiming to speak for God. I wonder if he knew what it was to be tempted by despair as he's living this life as an adult. Living out in the wilderness. Preaching about the coming Messiah that the people had been waiting for. And at the same time, I wonder if it would have been easy for John to have been tempted by arrogance. Because he knew that God had called him to speak. He knew that God had called him to preach. John's job, in part, was to call out the sin of the people that would show up to him with unabandoned. And yet, what was John's message? John's words were, I'm not the Christ. And in fact, as Jesus himself submitted himself to the baptism of repentance that John baptized with, John pointed to Jesus and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. I am not the Christ. Behold the Lamb of God. That's the humble confidence that God calls us to, that John calls us to. It's not defeatist, but it's not arrogant. For us, we don't have to live defeated lives. And I'm not, I'm not talking about the power of positive thinking and your best life now. I promise you that I'm not talking about that. But as you face obstacles, as you face struggles, as you wrestle with what does it mean for me to live a life of integrity in the workplace, to do my job, to go to school, striving after what it is that God would have for me with honesty and faithfulness. As you struggle together as couples, as you live in a community together where you strive to know God together, obstacles will come your way, conflicts will come your way. Your answer is not defeat, but nor is it arrogance. There's a place for us to learn humility as we realize that the one who is in us is greater than the one who is in the world. John adds something else to this picture, though. He gives us the standard of Jesus, and he gives us the stance of humble confidence. But where he lands, where he draws our attention in the last two verses, in verse 5 and 6, is to call us to trust in the Scriptures themselves. Notice verse 6 initially here. We look at verse 6. He, John says, we are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us, and whoever is not from God does not listen to us. When John says us, 
He's talking, he's talking in terms of authority. When John says us, he doesn't mean simply God's people or people who have good intentions. When John here says us, what he's talking about is he's talking about John himself and the other disciples who were commissioned as Jesus' apostles, those sent out to proclaim the gospel with the authority of Jesus himself. When John says us, he's talking about that authority being written down. He's talking about the word of God. It's the kind of authority that, I like to use this, this image, image with students. This might be just a touch gross, but it should be not too bad. Remember in science class, for those of us who can remember that back that far, when you had to dissect frogs, when they didn't do it with computers, when they actually had to dissect frogs, um, and you had this, this experience of taking this thing that's pinned to this, this wax plate thing, I think, um, and pinning the legs down and then starting to cut it open and learn about the different parts of it um, and learn what's inside. That's dissection, right? Dissecting a frog. Oftentimes, we treat the Bible that way. I'm going to dissect it. I'm going to study it. I'm going to understand it. And that can be done in really good ways and really helpful ways and in really not helpful ways. But when John speaks about authority, the authority of the Scriptures the way that he does, and he tells us to trust in them, we're the dead frog on the plate. We're the ones being examined. To speak of the Bible as authoritative means the Bible gets to dissect our lives and critique us. That the Bible speaks truth in a way that is outside of us so that we don't get to determine what it is and what it is not. That's the authority of Scripture. And of this, John says there again in verse 6, he says, whoever knows God listens to us. And he contrasts this in verse 5 with those who know the world and listen to the world and speak as the world does. When John uses that word listen here, he doesn't simply mean whoever is in earshot of the Bible is in and whoever simply doesn't hear it is out. It's not that simple. What he's talking about is a way of life. What he's talking about is obedience. Not that simple obedience is the measure of whether or not God is in your life, but it's what you do with the authority of Scripture. It's how we respond to it. As Scripture dissects us, does it dissect your striving after how you, of, of obedience? Does it dissect how you, not only how you think, but how you live your lives? That's the question for us. One of the, and one of the main tests of this obedience that John will go to again and again, even in this letter, is that question of what do you love? Because Jesus summarized, the, the, really, the teaching of Scripture by calling us to love God and love our neighbor as ourself. And it's really easy to think, well, at least there's not ten, there's not ten rules anymore. There's just two rules, right? Love God and love your neighbor. But the reality is that's not a minimalization of belief or obedience. When Jesus talks about loving God and loving your neighbor and John talks about listening to the word, this is what he's talking about, the unfolding of what it means to love God, what it looks like for us to learn to love our neighbors as ourself. So for you, is the Bible that kind of authority in your life? If the Bible justifies every part of your life and how you live and all the decisions that you make, you're probably not reading the Bible very carefully. I'm not reading the Bible very carefully when it does that for me. If there's no criticism of your life and your way of thinking and the way that you learn to love the people around you, then you're probably not reading the Bible very clearly. Are you willing to allow Scripture to dissect your obedience? Are you willing to allow it to dissect your life to show you that you actually need a Savior? And when we talked before about the forgiveness of sins and needing the forgiveness of sins and Jesus' provision, 
part of the dissection of Scripture is to take us to this place where we realize I can't do what is, demand, what is asked of me in Scripture all by myself. I can't accomplish it. I cannot please God enough. That's part of the work of Scripture. It's not to lead us only to a place of despair. It's to lead us to a place of need where the work of Jesus shines forth even more clearly then because the promise is if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us from all all unrighteousness. And that is part of the authority of Scripture as well. John gives us the standard. John gives us the stance. John gives us the Scriptures. And the beauty of what he's doing here is helping us understand not only how we test the spirits, not only how we learn to live with faithfulness in the world that God has made that does not understand God, but maybe even more importantly, what he's helping us understand is why. He's laying a foundation for us. You see, when we talk about Jesus being both divine and human, what we realize is Jesus came to give meaning to, this, to our existence because apart from him, there is not meaning. There is not purpose because it can't be found apart from knowing our creator. And we can't know our creator apart from Jesus. And we know that because Jesus came in the flesh Jesus was not a mouthpiece from heaven to teach us new ideas, to help us be more clever, to give us more insight. Jesus had to come, be born of a woman, suffer under Pontius Pilate, be crucified, dead, and buried, and then on the third day rise again so that you and I might actually have life. And in doing so, he reminds us that when God created the world, God called it all good. And God so loved the world that he sent his only son to die for this place for us. When, Jesus, when John describes the stance, it's the stance of freedom. It's the stance that says, I, I can risk getting to know my neighbor and screwing up that conversation, messing it up over and over again, but I can take the risk because greater is, in, greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. And as he gives us his word, he puts us in this place of dependence, a place to realize and see our need and live in the uncomfortable comfortableness of being a people in need. It's how he calls us to live in this world. It's what he's given us to live in this world. And a conversation that makes me think of, like, think of every time I study this, it, just this past week with, with one of our older students, young man, again, not from this church, but who's grown up in, in a solid church home, who's grown up with a solid family. His parents love him and have raised him well. He understands the scriptures. He understands the call of the gospel on his life. And he's working out what it looks like to follow Jesus in his chosen profession and as a student. And what he was reflecting with me on this week was how bad his Halloween was. He had spent part of the day in a road trip to Topeka, which is about an hour away, with one of his classmates that he's wanted to get to know better. His friend needed, they needed to go, he needed, his friend needed to sell something in Topeka, so the student said, I'll go with you, I'll help you out. Ended up not working out at all and being a very frustrating few hours for them. But they came back, they got back to Manhattan, and it was that evening, and so they decided uh, with some other classmates, we're going to go visit some Halloween parties that we can find on campus. And I'll just let, leave to your imagination what was happening at some of those parties. Um, but my, the student reflecting on the, the events of that night, and he was really frustrated and really down. But he said two things that struck me as incredibly profound in reflecting on what he was seeing going on that night. The, the first thing he noted is that as this group of people went from party to party to party, so he realized these people were just pretending to have fun. He said, I, I want to have fun. They were just pretending to have fun, and it didn't look like fun. 
But then he said this. This is what really got me. He said, they wanted to escape, and I came to celebrate. And what he's reflecting on is what he's seeing among his classmates, most of whom were not professing Christians at all. What he's seeing is students wanting to have fun, wanting to find excitement in this world. And yet all he was really seeing was them trying to escape the realities of the world in which we live. He said, I know what joy is because I know Jesus. And I don't want to hide that. I want to celebrate. I want to embrace life, embrace the good things of this world that God has given us, and celebrate And all they're doing is trying to escape. Our temptation, brothers and sisters, is to escape. Our temptation is to hide. Our temptation is to run away. And I'll tell you, every day of the week, we need to engage this world with great caution and great care. But the hope of the gospel is Jesus came in the flesh to bring life. Jesus calls us to a place not of escaping, but as a place of freedom as a place of learning, learning him, learning to follow him by trusting in what it is that he's accomplished. And he's given us his word. Beloved, the call is to test the spirits. Let's pray. Father in heaven, your word is truth. Sanctify us by your truth. Father, we look to you as a people in need. Lord Jesus, we need more than an instruction book. We we need more than a manual. We need life. We pray that by your Spirit's working, we would continue to know that life, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.